Let's, let, let's uh, turn our Bibles, if you will, to Exodus chapter 25, verse 8. Exodus chapter 25, verse 8. Um, a couple of years ago, it's been now, or so, I'm guessing, that's a, that's a total guess. might have been longer than that. We did a, a study of the book of Exodus, and God led us um, to uh, focus primarily, or one of the primary focuses of um, the book was to go over to the study of the tabernacle. And I know that many of you have probably been involved in studies or a study over the years of the tabernacle. It's one of the greatest, uh, richest spiritual journeys that we'll ever take in the Bible is to study the tabernacle and the detail that God gives there. And all that detail is there for uh, very specific reasons. Um, just by way of review... Creation, the creation account occupies two chapters in the Bible. And that's important, obviously, to know where we came from and why we're in the mess we're in and what God did about it. Lays the groundwork for all of that. But the tabernacle is given over to 50 uh, chapters in the Bible. 50. So there's a great deal of information in the tabernacle about, uh, in the Bible about the tabernacle and, and details there. We'll skim over some of the details and we'll have to do that to focus on some that we want to focus on this morning. But um, the tabernacle is a picture of Christ. Just like everything else in the Bible is. It leads to God's Son. You'll recall last week that we're picking up on where we uh, really, until God gives specific direction, He's either given it and I hadn't heard it yet, or... He hasn't given it yet, and I'm waiting on him. I don't know which. I hope it's that I'm waiting on him and I hadn't heard it yet of where to go next in the scriptures. And um, as far as a book in the Bible, I just left over uh, from our study of First and Second Peter, and, I, and right now I'm seeking the Lord about where we go from here. In the meantime, I'm confident that He's got us where we are. That is picking up from last week to make a observation and live spiritual truths from something that's very, very important. And that is that in Nehemiah's time, like we talked about, um, Nehemiah's commission to go rebuild the uh, wall um, after the um, in the aftermath or in the, at the end of the Babylonian captivity was the third of three waves to go back and reconstruct. And we made the observation last week that the first one uh, was to uh, go back and rebuild the temple led by Zerubbabel and Joshua. Then the second one was led by Ezra. And the third one in Nehemiah to rebuild the wall was led by, of course, Nehemiah. And we made the observation last week that they they rebuilt the temple before they rebuilt the wall. If we would have done that, and uh, I'm glad that none of us are God, that's good. None of us are God. None of us ever will be. Um, but I'm grateful that, that God is in charge and He knows what He's doing and we don't know what we're doing. But we could have made a good case to rebuild the wall first and to put up the fortification to protect things so that we would be free from a threat from the enemy to rebuild the tabernacle. But in the mind and heart of God, worship's always first. Communion with God. That's why God sent His Son. He didn't send His Son so we'd know about Him. He sent His Son so we'd know Him. And we'd have communion with Him and have a relationship. God's a relationship God. And um, 
And He did that to purchase a relationship in doing that to rescue us from the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and one day from its very presence. So worship's the priority, the tabernacle. And we know that that tabernacle or that temple is a, is a picture of Christ. And what He's saying, what we lifted from there is, is in order to have the strength to rebuild the wall, there has to be, it has to be from communion with God in the, in the temple. Otherwise, we're going to spend ourselves and we're going to display an um, erroneous characterization of the Christian life. The Christian life is not to be lived with contorted faces and furrowed brows, but the Christian life is to be lived abiding in Christ with a peace that passes all understanding. The Christian life is to say no to our own strength so that we can tap into His. The Christian life is to run out of our excuses to trust ourselves and in communion to trust Him, to lean on Him. Not just to trust Him to save me in the hope of future glory, the trust Him to keep me and the trust in Him to empower me until future glory. And so, going from there, I thought, you know what? I felt led. that We go into the tabernacle, we look at the tabernacle in, in particular, a couple of things about it. And we could spend years on this and never scratch the surface. But this issue about rebuilding, and, and, and that's a, it's a huge issue in, in Christendom in today, but in every Christian culture it is. Who are we going to trust? If we trust Him to save us, then we should be, tr- we should be trusting Him to empower us to live the Christian life. Somehow or another we get in this notion that you know Jesus clearly saves us. And we say with our lips, He keeps us and empowers us. But then after getting saved, we try to do back the same thing that we were doing in the flesh, and that is to save ourselves. To live the Christian life out of our own strength and our own power. And so, the temple being rebuilt first is symbolic of that. They rebuilt the temple before they rebuilt the wall. Construction without communion leads to catastrophe. Because it didn't last. It's communion that matters. If you've been in the presence of the Lord, you and others will know it. If you've not been, ultimately you and others will know it as well. You come into the presence of the Lord, you don't come out the same. It's not possible. You certainly don't come out prideful. You come out broken and humble with childlike faith and trust. So I want to look at this issue of communion with the Lord and look at it as that communion is represented in this glorious, glorious teaching of the tabernacle. The message, the title of this message is The Beauty of Badger Skin. The beauty of badger skin. And uh, look at Exodus 25 with me. And we're going to look at verse 8 first. In Exodus 25, 8, the Lord tells His people, And let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell among them according to all that I show you. That is, the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of of all its furnishings just so you shall make it. Just so you shall make it. You do it exactly the way I tell you to do it. I'm going to give you the pattern. 
and I'm going to give you the skill to, to build it. And this tabernacle is going to go with you everywhere you go because I'm going to go with you. That's the place I will meet you. <clears throat> now remember, this is the old covenant. The new covenant grace is the tabernacle now is the heart and lives of the repentant <clears throat> believer. Look at John chapter 1, verse 14. Look what our Lord said there. You're very familiar with this verse. He said, John 1, 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. There in uh, that verse, when it says in the Word, capital W-O-R-D, meaning Christ became flesh, that God, Jesus, God the Son, took on human flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt is the word tabernacle. Tabernacled among us. Communed among us. God became a man. Man-made religion is man's unsuccessful attempt to reach God. God in Christ is God's successful attempt to reach man. Absent Him, and Him being the divine catalyst, we'd have no appetite for God. We'd have no will or desire to know Him or means to know Him, and certainly not to walk in His ways. The truth of the matter is, is once we're born into this world, we're born into sin under the curse of Adam, and we don't run toward God, we run away from Him. Every man-made religion is a systematic uh, attempt to run away from God, not toward Him. And He shows us in the tabernacle what communion with Him is like. What is communion? What does it mean to go to the, what does it mean to go to the temple or the tabernacle before we go to building on the wall? And I hope this time together we can look at some answers to that. Spencer's going to put on the um, on the screen a picture of the tabernacle. And uh, we're going to uh, look at just a couple of elements of it. But you'll recall, you can draw back on your memory, that um, as you go into the tabernacle courtyard, there are seven pieces of furniture in the tabernacle. The first one is the bronze altar, or the brazen altar. That's the first place you encounter once you go in there. And then, <clears throat> after the bronze or, um, altar, is the bronze laver. So in between the bronze altar and the place of intimate communion with God in the tabernacle lies the bronze labor. We're going to focus in on that a little bit this morning. The bronze labor then is the place of washing and preparation in order to enter into deep intimacy with God. That's what that symbolizes. And the truth of the matter is every believer qualifies. Not just some high priest representing the people. We're a kingdom of priests now. And we can enter in. We're in. In position. But we can enter in and practice. Now when you're at the bronze labor, this is something we have to remember. You're still in the out, outer courtyard. You're still in the outer courtyard. Now you're in, and the gate represents Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life and no man comes to the Father except by me. The Bible says if you try to scale the wall and come up some of the way, you're a thief. 
And you'll be found out and convicted. There's only one way to come. And through that gate is coming through Christ. It's a symbol of being drawn toward saving faith. So once you get in that courtyard, it's a symbol of salvation. That's our position. Then when you go inside into the holy place and then later on into the most holy place, you find the other pieces. First would be the golden lampstand. Second would be the table of showbread. Then, just as you begin to enter into the most holy place, is the altar of incense. And then in the most holy place, you'll, be, you'll remember, contains the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat atop it. Those are the seven, seven parts of the tabernacle. <clears throat> All that represents deep communion, intimate communion, and fullness in our relationship with Jesus. And to be honest with you, many believers live their whole Christian life never experiencing that. They're going to go to heaven. But rather than God got you out of Egypt, but you wandered around in the wilderness and never got into the promised land. The in-between. Worst place to be that you could imagine. God wants us in the place of intimate communion. And He gives us the pathway toward that intimate communion by looking at the pieces of this tabernacle. Now let's go to Exodus chapter 30 verse 17. In Exodus chapter 30 verse 17, He speaks of the bronze labor. We're going to spend some time on this this morning. The bronze labor. Look what he says here in his instructions. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, You shall also make a labor of bronze with its base also of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tabernacle of meeting, that's the place of communion, and the altar, which would be the bronze altar. And you shall put water in it, for Aaron and his son shall wash their hands and their feet in water from it. And when they go into the tabernacle of meeting, or when they come near able to minister, to burn an offering made by fire to the Lord, they shall wash with water lest they die. So they shall wash their hands and their feet lest they die. And this shall be a statue statute forever to them, to him and his descendants throughout their generations. In Exodus, I'm not going to ask you to go there, but you might want to mark this down. In Exodus chapter 40, verse 7, and then in Exodus chapter 40, verses 30 through 32, it speaks of the bronze altar and what's contained, I mean the bronze labor, and what's contained in that bronze labor is water. It's water. The position is incredibly important. It is strategically placed between the bronze altar and the place of communion. What that means to you and I as New Testament believers is that the bronze altar is symbolic of the cross. At the bronze altar is where uh, Christ offered up Himself In Psalm 118, when Jesus 
speaks of this is the day that the Lord has made and I'll rejoice and be glad in it. He was speaking of the day of His death. And He said, bind the sacrifice to the horns of the altar. And the, New, the Old Testament believers who, who would have heard that would have known exactly what He meant by that. And what He meant by that was as there were horns on that altar and they would take the sacrifice and they would bind it to the altar. And Jesus said, I'm going to be bound. He was talking about Himself. Bind me to that altar so I can save you. Boy, what a Savior. So when you're in the courtyard and you make it to the altar, the bronze altar, the altar is now behind you. You're in. You are saved. You are in Christ. But still, between you and intimate communion is a strategically placed truth that is true for the New Testament believer from now until He takes us to heaven. And that is the need for washing. There is that bronze laver there. Now you recall a couple of weeks ago when we went through the Lord's Supper and we were preparing for the Lord's Supper in John chapter 19, verse 34. How about going there with me? Keep your Bibles open because we're going to go to a bunch of places this morning. In John chapter 19, verse 34, look what it says. You'll remember that in John's account of the cross, when Christ was crucified, he, uh, in this account, it says, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. Blood and water came out. A sure sign of death. Christ had physically died. He didn't go to sleep on the cross. He didn't come close to death on the cross and have a near-death experience and they beat Him almost to death. He was dead physically. And that was a sign of His death. But the blood and water, why the blood and water? The blood is symbolic of the bronze altar. The Bible says, and in Him, in Ephesians um, chapter 1, verse 7, you have redemption, uh, and the, the, through His blood and the forgiveness of sin. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is salvation. This is relationship. But He doesn't stop there. The water came out. The water came out and it's symbolic of the bronze laver because the water came out to ensure the fellowship. You're clean already at the bronze altar, positionally speaking. But because we're still on this earth, we have a practical need of cleansing. You know, the tabernacle in all of its glory, even in the outer courtyard, and also in the holy place and in the most holy place, you know what the floor was made of? Dirt. The whole thing had a dirt floor. Wherever it happened to be resting, it's dirt floor. It's a reminder. These truths are not applicable to heaven in the sweet by and by. They're applicable to the now and now while we're on this earth. And the priests, once he, he went beyond, once he went beyond the bronze altar, once we go beyond the bronze altar and if we repent toward God and put faith in His Son, and, and He does His work there of offering the sacrifices, He's got blood on His hands and He's got dirt on His feet. 
And so before he can ever go into the most holy place, which is symbolic in the New Testament dispensation of communion with God, he's got to wash his hands and he's got to wash his feet. And the hand washing and the foot washing go on at the bronze labor. Spencer's going to put a picture of it up there for us. The labor was made, the labor was made of brass and brass only. Some of the furnishings were made of composite material, but not the laver. The laver was brass and brass only. The laver was made of brass only. The golden lampstand was made of brass only. And so was the mercy seat. Solid brass. In the Bible, in the Bible, in typology, in the Bible, brass speaks of the judgment of God. And what he's saying to us here is this. Here is how gracious and merciful I am to you. Positionally speaking, you're right with me. You're my son, you're my daughter, you're my child. But because you're still on this earth and the flesh still has, still has in a practical sense, still has the ability to influence you by your choice and mine, you're in need of cleansing. Not practical cleansing. I mean, not positional cleansing. Your need of practical cleansing. And He gave the bronze labor to show us that that need exists for us as a believer. And it's the stopover before we ever get to intimate communion with God. Now, think about this. Here's the application for us just this morning. Because we're going to do it this morning, God willing. We're going to have the Lord's Supper this morning. And go, go with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And look at it. We've looked at it many times before. Dear ones, God is a gracious God. That wall around that tabernacle was meant to keep some out and protect others and define them within. God has made it so that we can commune with Him. He said in the New Covenant, the least of those to the greatest can know Me. That's why Lynn can say that a child can have a spiritual appetite and spiritual comprehension beyond what we give them credit for. Why? Because from the little ones all the way to the older ones and everyone in between, they can all know Me from the least to the greatest, the New Covenant says. Remember, brass is a place of judgment. God's a merciful God. Look what He says in verse 27 of chapter 11. Therefore, in response to instruction of the, of the communion. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup in the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment. Brass is symbolic of judgment. He brings judgment to himself, not discerning, appreciating, taking for granted, apathetic, having contempt, in other words, for the, for the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. This is the principle. At the bronze laver made out of brass. And brass is symbolic of judgment. It is God's divine grace to give us the opportunity to judge our sin before He has to. 
those who take advantage of that wide open opportunity and say, Dear God in heaven, as we take communion this morning, recognizing that you're an alive God and a knowable God, and you have purchased a relationship between me and you, I know you and you know me. And based on that relationship, I want to enter into deeper communion with you. But standing in the way of that deep communion are things that you have brought up to the surface of my heart and sin that's there that you've convicted me of. And in practice, I want to come close as I can to you that I am in you in position. And while I'm on this earth, I want to walk with you. And now at the bronze labor, at this place... I am going to take the sin that you've convicted me of and I'm going to judge it and I'm going to repent of it and I'm going to ask you to forgive me. I'm going to receive your forgiveness because I already have it. But I'm going to receive it in a practical sense. And I am going to get inside that place. Whatever plagues me, And whatever pleasure I've derived from that which plagued me, and whatever disbelief motivated it, I'm done with it. I don't want to have anything to do with it as an act of pure worship. Not because you'll give me a better car, not because you'll give me a bigger house, not because you'll pad my personal financial statement, because of an act of worship. I've come to know and believe that Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, and You have the words of life. I just want to know you. I want to walk with you. I want to talk with you. I want to have communion with you. Because you've been so incredibly good to me. Apart from you, I have no place or parcel in that place of communion. But because of you, my name's in there. Hallelujah. God doesn't want us to remain distant and fearful. He wants us to be repentant. And full of Him. So at the New Testament, the New Testament application is what we're going to do today. The Lord's Supper, and when you have communion with God, you have an opportunity, and so do I, to go to the bronze labor and judge sin and save God from having to do it. We're not going to get into this today. The Bible says in John chapter 5, the first John, that there is sin unto death. And if a believer continues in habitual sin and refuses to repent, rather than causing further damage to the cause of Christ and the body of Christ and His testimony, some believers get taken home prematurely. That's why it says many are sick among you and have fallen asleep. See that sleep is a euphemism for death. Why? Because you did something foolish that is, that you held on to your sin and rebellion rather than going to the bronze labor and judging it through repentance and faith in Christ and receiving the forgiveness that you have all along. What a foolish choice. What a foolish choice. It's a place of judgment. We're moving on. It's pure bronze because it's unmitigated judgment. It is undiluted judgment. Do you hear it? Do you hear it? I'm going to tell you something right now. Repentance, in the strictest sense, is a fairly easy thing to define. But I can tell you this. You might not be able to define the consequences of it, but you know it when you see it. And let me tell you this about repentant people. 
repentant people judge their sin. They blame nobody else. They take personal responsibility for what they did. They don't shift the blame, make excuses, or say so-and-so made me do it. You don't know the pressure I was under. You don't know the situation. They do none of that. Let me tell you why they do that. They do that because they're so thrilled to be made free. Those dear ones, no one can stop you from the place of communion except you. Except you. When you were outside that wall, you had no choice. The only persons in the world who ever had free will is Adam and Eve. And so now, because we have renewed minds and we've been awakened by the Holy Spirit of promise, we have a choice. God chose me so that now I can choose Him. In salvation, God sought you. In sanctification, you and I seek Him. The Bible says without faith it's impossible to please God. And he who comes to Him must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. It's a no hold bars, unexcused, unmitigated judgment. It is not Eve's shenanigans where the devil made me do it. It's not Adam's shenanigans where God and Eve made him do it. The woman that you gave me caused me to sin. It's not covering it up and taking fig leaves and hiding from God. No. Repentance is honesty. Repentance is taking God's side against what I did and saying, God, I used to try to justify this. Now I realize I'm taking your side against me because I want to be free. Proverbs 28.13 says this, a man who covers his sin will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes his sin finds mercy. Oh man, mercy. Mercy. What are the contents in there? We already talked about it in Exodus 30, 18. Chapter, 8, chapter 30 of Exodus 18. What are the contents in the labor? Well, water. Stay with me now. We covered a lot of ground. I understand that. Exodus 30.18, it says there's water in there. Look at it. <clears throat> Please. You shall also make a labor of bronze with its base of bronze for washing. You will put it in between the tabernacle of meeting and the altar and you shall put water in it. It doesn't say blood. It doesn't say blood. Don't put blood in there. The Catholics, when they do Mass... Put blood in their labor. And they try to kill Jesus all over again because they don't view his first death being enough. We don't put we don't put blood in there. That's juice. And it when you take it and we distribute it, it will remain juice. It is not the blood of Jesus Christ. It's symbolic of the blood of Jesus Christ. And so there's water in there. Now, dear ones, listen at this. Typology. It, it, it types in the Bible. Here's the principle. The blood brings you inside, but the water brings you into communion. The blood brings the relationship, but the water brings the communion. With an alive God! You know what we do? And Lynn was mentioning this to me a while ago, a commentary from Warren Wiersbe about the Lord's Supper. What a great commentary it was. And that is this. He said, you know what? Be careful and watch out. And we do have to watch out that we don't memorialize the Lord's Supper as if we're in here at a funeral service. 
It's a memorial of a death that has brought me life. Jesus is alive. And guess what? As a repentant believer, He's alive in me. Amen? Amen. Hallelujah. And so you know what? He's alive. He's alive. I'd, I'd break it out and start singing that one if I could right now. I forgot who's whatever. Don Francisco, somebody like that. Y'all all run out of the building. I don't blame you. See, remember, the blood brings you inside, but the water brings you into communion. Remember the blood and water of John 19.34. The blood purchased the relationship. The water ensures the fellowship. Water in the Bible. Listen now. Listen. Water in the Bible is symbolic of things. When it is spoken of in drinking, it is symbolic of the Holy Spirit. The Bible says in John chapter 7 that the Holy Spirit is going to come. And when He does, I'm going to fill you with Him. So much so that I'll be filled to overflow it and it'll spill out on everybody else around. So when He talks about it, as far as drinking is concerned, He's talking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But when He's talking about cleansing, using it to cleanse, it's a type of the Bible. It's a type of the Bible. Now look at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Go over there with me if you will. Ephesians 5.25. Very familiar passage. But let's don't, let's, don't, let's don't downsize this passage and make it just about marriage. Because it's not. Passages about marriage in the Bible are not about marriage only. They're about the marriage supper of the Lamb and Christ and the relationship He enjoys with His church to enrich our understanding of that. So let's don't practice spiritual reductionism where we take everything to the lowest common denominator. Let's, let's look at it and let's fly high above the text and find out what it really means. And this is what he says. Husbands, love your wives. How? Just as Christ loved the church and gave Himself for her to purchase a what? A relationship. Blood. And then, also that He might sanctify her and cleanse her. How? With the washing of the water by the Word. What's the result? That He might present her to Himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. That's how husbands are to love their wives. Out of His side. When God reached in the side of Adam and took out a rib, out came His church. When God reached inside His Son, and stuck that sword in there, out came His bride, the church. And when water came out and blood came out, everything that's necessary for life and godliness came out. And I lack and you lack nothing. Jesus Christ plus nothing equals everything. Praise His holy name. So we need to bathe ourselves in the Word. That's the bronze labor, dear ones. Look at Psalm 19, 119. Look at Psalm 119. I want you to see this maybe in a new way today. Psalm 119. And let's go to verse 9 through 16. You've read this before. This is so, so cool. Psalm 119, verse 9 through 6. How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. With my whole heart. I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Your word I have hidden 
in my heart that I might not sin against You. Blessed are You, O Lord. Teach me Your statutes. With my lips I have declared them. All the judgments of Your mouth. I have rejoiced in the way of Your testimonies as much as in all riches. I will meditate on Your precepts and contemplate Your ways. I will delight myself in Your statutes. I will not forget Your Word. How could a young man keep his way pure? Young men? Are there young men here? You want to know how to keep your way pure? Immerse yourself in God's Word every day. Meditate on it. Make it to the point where you're so full of it that you begin to think, act, and speak biblically. Not to be a nuisance to other people. Knowledge puffs up, love edifies. But so you can bless other people. Oh, let me tell you what Jesus Christ is doing in my life. I bet, oh, that better not go back to eight months ago. If it does, there's a problem. Can I tell you what He did this week? Can I tell you what He showed me this morning? Oh, oh! How has He sustained me? The Bible says, David said this, Remember the word that you have spoken to your servant, upon which you have Calls me to trust. Because it's been my comfort in my affliction because your word has given me life. It's the washing of the water. I'll borrow from a quote that you've probably heard before from Vance Abner. And it's really a good one. He said, either sin will keep you away from this book or this book will keep you away from sin. That's the truth. We bathe ourselves in the Word of God. Mind Him. Listen to Him. Respond in obedience. Search Him out. Go there first. Go to Him first. Not second, third, fourth. Or as an addendum or a postscript or exhibit B. Right there. Right there. The gate is where the sinner is cleansed. You go into the gate. Do you remember... Our Lord's discussion with Peter. And He said, you know what, I'm going to wash your feet. And Peter said, ah, you're not washing my feet. Uh-uh, that ain't happening. He's trying to spiritualize something. He was trying to point to himself. He took something that looked like it was humility. It wasn't nothing but pride. I don't need washing. Maybe the rest of these gooberheads do, but not me. I'm Chief Kahuna. They're going to scatter a little bit, but not me. And he found out. He did scatter. My Lord said, you know what? You just need to wash your feet and you'll be cleansed. You're already clean, son. Let me wash your feet. When you go into the gate, you are washed by somebody else. Did you hear it? When you go into the gate, you're washed by somebody else. I don't know how they did that. Don't ask us to go there. But they did it in some modest way. But from head to toe, somebody else washed you when you went in that gate. But when you got to the labor, you washed yourself. In relationship, Christ washed you and I. In fellowship, we respond to the Word in faith and repentance and we get washed. Because see, when you go to the bronze laver, you get what on your hands? Blood. The priest. And when you're walking in a courtyard that has dirt on it, you get dirt on your feet. And so whatever you picked up in those exercises, you're positionally clean when you walked in. But dear ones... You've got to be practically cleaned if you want to move in. 
if you want to abide there. This is so incredibly important. I make no apology for drawing these distinctions because when you go through the Bible and you sail through the Bible, you better get your ships right. You better get your ships right when you go in the Bible. The distinguishment between relationship and fellowship and what one means to the other. You better get your ships right or you'll get on the wrong boat and you'll sail to spiritual failure. Look at this. So you, so you get washed. Look what happened now. Let's move on in. Exodus chapter 26 verse 14. Hang with me. Exodus 26 14. This is the reason for the title of the sermon. Exodus 26.14 Look at it. Mm. You shall also make a covering of ram skins dyed red for the tent and a cover of badger skins above that. Isn't it pretty obvious why the ram skins dyed red are on top of that? When John the Baptist saw Christ the first time and recorded the Scripture as an adult, what did he say? John 1.29 Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus. is dyed blood red because without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sin. It's covered. You're covered. You and I are covered with the blood of Christ. That communion, that covering ensures it. It ensures it. It's as sure as the promises of God made good by the Son of God, validated by His resurrection three days after He was offered on the cross of Calvary. Then we've got the badger skins. The title of the message is Badger Skins Are Beautiful. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 4. Badger skins. Let's, let's mess and gobble that a little bit. Look at, look at Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 4. Watch this. Jesus, He's talking about all the things He had done for them, reminding them of His activity and His grace over them. In their, in their wilderness sojourn. Look what it says in verse 4. Your garments did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these 40 years. Their garments did not wear out, and their feet did not swell for 40 years. They're still able to walk around. 40 years now. I mean, it's not like they could go to pay less. And this was rough territory. Terrain. Hot, cold, extremes, you know, weather extremes. I know when I'm on my hands right now, they start to crack at this time of the year. And uh, I'll probably have 50 uh, or so ointments on them and it'll still crack. And, but, uh, but, you know, the, the, um, uh, the, the, their feet. But look at the explanation for that. In, uh, Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 10. Okay, follow with me now. Let's stick around. Um, this is very important. Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 10. Sixteen ten. God talking about His love for, for His people. And we could apply this to us. And then I washed you in water, verse 9. Yes, I thoroughly washed off your blood and I anointed you with oil. And I clothed you in embroidered cloth. And I gave you sandals of badger skin. I clothed you with fine linen, covered you with silk. I gave you clothing of badger skins. You might see in the margin of your Bible a note that says, 
even dolphin or porpoise skins. It's probably from a dolphin or a porpoise that they got those skins. You're like, where did they get them from in the wilderness? Egypt. God saw to it that they got everything they needed out of Egypt. And they pillaged Egypt. He took what was theirs. Amen? Because it's all His. And these badger skins were so tough, they made it through 40 years because they were tough. They were shoe leather. It was tough. See, here's what I want you to see. Put, put, the, put that up there. It's the, 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 um, where you can see inside the Holy of Holies. Can you, you got it? Okay. You see the, you see the coverings up there. and We could go into that and speak. We could spend eight months on those coverings. It's amazing. I have spiritual hootenannies every time I go through this. I'm telling you right now. But the badger skin is up top. Beneath it is a ram skin dyed with red. Of course, that's the symbolic of the blood of Christ. That doesn't do a real good job of that, in my humble but accurate opinion. But here's the thing. Um, inside that most holy place, the walls were gold. They were gold. And, now, the floor is still earth. But you walk in there and you see the golden lampstand over there. Now, the golden lampstand, what the Bible says, Jesus said of Himself, I am the light of the world. Okay, the golden lampstand is symbolic of the light of Christ, but the oil that fuels the light is symbolic of the Holy Spirit. So, who lights up the holy whole place? The Holy Spirit. What does He do? Who does He direct us to? Himself? Jesus. He will testify of Me. Alright, so now we've got that. Right across the street, we've got the table of showbread. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Then we've got the altar of incense, which is symbolic of the prayers of the saints going up. And God, a sweet smelling aroma because we have the right to be there because of His Son. The point being, when you walk in there and you've got this six foot or so candelabra with seven lamps on it, and it's burning bright, could you imagine what that must look like against the gold walls on four sides? Oh, could you imagine? The survey estimate is that like, that probably that probably was worth four or five six million dollars. You know what? That right there, the splendor of it. But here's the point. This is why badger skin is beautiful. Here's the point. You cannot see the glory of what it looks like on the inside from the outside. The outside perspective is that's a drab, dull place, and it does not look inviting. So what have we done? We've played into the spirit of the age and tried to dress up communion with God because the world views it to be so dull. We, we've tried to do everything we can to pander to people's flesh in order to help Christ out. To view Him to be better than He is. Because after all, if you take a cursory glance at Him, He doesn't look that good. Well, you know what? When you walk in there though, you're done. <coughs> you're done! You've had it. You're ruined. Nothing else will satisfy you again in the Christian life. Not a thing. Courtyard wanderings, courtyard, you couldn't care less about the courtyard. Because once you go in there, but that badger skin was dull. It was, it was not um, lustry. It was none of those things. That's the world's view of Christ. That's the world's view of fallen Christ. And we as the church have bought into it thinking that we've got to dress Jesus up and make Him look better than He really is, when in reality, we don't even know how good He is. 
Inside's communion. And inside is fresh bread that you know you can't find any food in the courtyard. But you go in there. Hot bread. <laughs> Make Panera look bad. And some of you might not think they look good. It'd be a cathead biscuit from the griddle of glory. Amen. To go inside there. That's what it's like in communion with Jesus. It's dull. It's boring on the outside. To a courtyard saint, the Bible is... Here it is. Prayer. These powerful graces that we've been given. And buddy, you better make sure you tee up worship, you do music worship, you better entertain me. Big time. I don't get entertained, I don't stick around. You better tee it up. You better get it and get some grunge music and do what you can with it because I'm telling you right now, that's just drab and boring to me. I have to say, if you came in here this morning, and Spencer came in here this morning with a Jew's harp, and we sang, we shall gather at the river, we would all be able to be able to sit inside, be shouting to the rooftop that one day we're going to gather with the saints of old. And He can lead us with a Jew's harp. Some of the stuff that we are doing is not worship. It's nothing but entertainment. It is courtyard observation. That's all it is. And I'm going to tell you right now, you can linger around the courtyard all you want. You'll still go to heaven when you die. Maybe not though. Maybe your satisfaction in the courtyard is really because you're meandering around outside the tabernacle. And you never have went in. Because I don't know how that can hold for you. If it holds, it's a good question to ask, isn't it? The Bible says to examine yourself to see that if you're of the faith. But there's walls of gold and fresh bread with a dirt floor. Still on earth. But you know what? I had a friend of mine who wrote a song. Uh, and it said, I know, Lord, that you're waiting to see before you take me how much of heaven is living in me. And I told him, I said, Brother, you had a great... You had a word from the Lord and you said that. That's right. How much of heaven is living in you? How much of it is in me? <laughs> it has everything to do with whether or not we're in there. Can I say this to you too? Picture, let's, get, picture, let's get a picture of the whole thing. In the courtyard. In the courtyard. Okay. Um, the light that serves the believers in the courtyard is identical to the light that serves those that are without it. So, absent communion with Christ, a believer makes their decisions by the same light that a non-believer has. Their priorities are just exactly alike. And rather than looking like Christ, they look like the world. Courtyard light inside comes from the sun and it's the same light that's enjoyed by those around it. It's called common grace. The only reason that you ever live long enough to repent is because God let you. It's common grace. 
Bible says God causes it to rain on the righteous and what? The unrighteous. It's common grace. Little wonder that we as believers live confused and out of kilter lives because we're drawing from the same light that we did when we got before we got saved. I had a pastor friend of mine. Matter of fact, I was his associate pastor. He told me one time he was with a big shot pastor once. Big shot Southern Baptist pastor. This was in Southern Baptist ranks. He was like the, for years, I guess the de facto leader of the Southern Baptist Convention, really. He was very highly respected. And he had him at a Bible conference at their church. He was the associate pastor at the time. And of all the people that got assigned to carry him back to the airport after the conference was over with, he got the job. You know, you always want for that one, you know. Oh, man, let me hang out with him for a little bit. And you think he would sit there and say, well, son, tell me about you. How many children do you have? And, you know, what's their names? And how are you? You know, that I kind of talked to him. He started confiding in him. That was unusual. I said, I told him, I said, Russ, the reason he did that was because God was speaking through him, through him to you. He didn't have any reason to dump the bucket to you. You fix a guy out of the car. He could say, hey, son, you saying something? You know, that kind of... <laughs> He pastored First Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas. He said, I'm going to tell you my biggest regret in ministry. I've been looking for a pen. Hold on just one second. All right, now, all right, what is that? Tell me. Um, my biggest regret in ministry. He said, when I got to First Baptist Dallas and I had all these oil men in my church, these big business executives, I was so impressed with them. I put them in leadership. You know what he was saying? We made business decisions instead of spiritual decisions. We made about the same sunlight that carnal men do. The wisdom of men is foolishness with God. Foolishness with God. But the Bible says to the believer who is in communion with Him, the Bible says in Proverbs 3.32 that the perverse person is an abomination to the Lord, but to the man who walks uprightly, God gives his secret counsel. Trouble is, watch out now, mind us, let's mind ourselves. If you go in there for secret counsel, you won't get there. You go in there for worship. And then as a byproduct of worship, you get secret counsel. You see it? You go in there for that, then God's just a spiritual Santa Claus to you, and you have no idea what worship is about. If you have to be entertained and tickled and trumped up to worship the Lord when you come together for corporate worship, you have not been worshiping all week. I love Spencer. I have a tremendous amount of respect for him. But I do not expect him to trump it up or do that. Because even if he could, he couldn't. You understand? I'll tell you something right now. There's nothing dull with communion with Christ. Nothing. The badger skins only protect and ensure. But the badger skins are hard enough. The badger skins are hard enough to walk on. I'm going to give you a New Testament application here. you got a choice. And I've got a choice. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 10. And we're going to have the Lord's Supper.
courtyard wandering is evidenced by confusion, being spent, discouragement, fear, anxiety, worry, and a filthy tongue. Among others. You get in the presence of Jesus, the furrow goes off the brow. Compassion begins to well up in you. And I guess more important than anything else, love. If badger skin is tough enough to walk on for 40 years, it covers the tabernacle because of the weather extremes in a practical sense. When you go from freezing temperatures at night to scorching heart during the day, you better have something to protect that. That was God's protection over that tabernacle for the sweetness that went on within where He met with them. you got choices, and so do I. Here's what this verse says. This will bring us to some kind of holy fear, I guess. Not to draw us away from God, but to draw us to Him. Verse 28, chapter 10. Hebrews, anyone who's rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the Spirit of grace? We either trample on the badger skin or be covered by it. One or the other. I'll tell you this. You can trample him by taking him for granted, which is apathy. Or you can trample him by viewing him not to be enough, which is disbelief, fueled by pride. Or we can say, you know what? It's on. It's on. I'm done, it's over. Because all that gets done for me and the mercies of God toward me because I am should be in hell right now, apart from Christ. Is that true? Yeah. The only reason we're not there now or headed there is because of Jesus. And because of the manifold mercy of God and the grace of God toward me, I want to walk with Him. And I don't care if that means whatever. I couldn't care less what that means. Just let me walk with you, Jesus. Oh, man, that's the Christian life, dear ones. So we can wander around the courtyard and be courtyard saints, or we can enter in. And you know what? We have sanctified wills now, sanctified um, minds. And to be honest with you, how far you and I go with that, it's not up to God. It's up to me and you. It is.